Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. All right, joining me today on Postcards from a Dying World is one of my all-time favorite authors who has a very overloaded shelf behind me of just his titles. F. Paul Wilson, um, you kind of sort of were already on this podcast, but we did not intend to record that as a podcast. I was just picking your brain about the writing process for a class that I was going to be teaching. So you've been on the podcast before, but not specifically for the podcast, I guess. But the last time we talked was for Dickheads for um, the Tony Boucher tribute. But welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. Um, Paul is the author of two of my all-time favorite series, and that's the Adversary Cycle and the Repairman Jack books, but they all take place in a larger universe called the Secret History of the World, and I'm sure we'll get into that. But, Paul, welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad yeah, to be so, back. So you just mentioned to me offline that you have retired from medicine, and that means you have more time to write. Can you tell me a little bit about what's uh, going on with you in the writing career these days? The, the most recent was the the book from Forge, uh, Double uh, Threat, which there it is, which they they put a nice cover on, but yeah. uh, it uh, and, but they kept it a secret. It's you know just I never saw it mentioned anywhere. Uh, so, but anyway, the I've written the sequel, which is Double Dose. Mm-hmm. Um, I also dug out at a cozy mystery I had written after, right after I wrote Crisscross. Crisscross was such a dark book that I just needed a palate cleanser. And so I wrote this light, cozy mystery. And uh, so after I retired from medicine in January 2019, shortly before COVID reared its ugly head, um, and you know something had always been missing from it, and I just figured out what it was. It, you know, I needed I needed the supernatural element. Um, I just needed <laughs> or something weird in there, and so <laughs> and I so I put a ghost in it, and it worked really well, well enough for me to write a sequel. So I had these two cozy mysteries, which are now being published by um, Crossroad Press. Mm-hmm. For um, under a, a name, uh, what name do I have? Nina Abbott, I think, is the name I have. Um, let me just the listeners oh, too. Nina Abbott, it is. Oh, so it's written under a pen name, huh? Yeah, well, it says F. Paul Wilson writing as Nina Abbott. Always trying to get on that top shelf, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because being a W, you've always been at the yes. Back. If you have a bad back, you never see my books. Um, and so the uh, the one after that, the sequel, which is this is RX Murder, RX Mayhem, will be coming out uh, maybe six months later. 
Um, I asked for a retro cover. They did a very nice job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it looks great. And and I think, um, well, that's really cool. I'm going to have to track that down because I didn't know about that either. So here's the thing. I think a lot of people, some people don't realize because you've been such a successful author and you've written so many books that you were still still a doctor and still practicing medicine. What did that look like for you in that balance before before turning before retiring? Well, I cut back in the 90s when um, I was writing novels. Matt Costello and I were also scripting FTL newsfeed for the Sci-Fi Channel. We were running from coast to coast scripting interactive uh, CD-ROMs. Um, Which was and, uh, way ahead of the game, too. <laughs> I, I was burning out. You know, it was... Uh, so I, I just told my partners, uh, I'm just going to cut down to two days a week. I'm going to do Mondays and Tuesdays. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I would rotate through the weekend calls like I had been. But, you know, I just I just couldn't. Something had to give. And you know, I, I, I cut back on the medicine rather than cut back on the writing. Yeah, and we're all thankful for that. So, you know, I realized, too, that I should give or go a little bit more into your origin story. And I, I believe you're, you're lifelong New Jersey, uh, New Jerseyan, as, as it were, yes. right? And how did you get into genre of fiction? And what were the authors that they kind of first stoked your imagination? Well, I started, I started off reading Tom, uh, was it Tom Swift Jr. Mm-hmm. and Rick Brandt. They were juvenile series. But yeah, Tom Swift Jr. had had a submarine. He had a rocket ship, you know. And then I, I, I found I found a book. I came across it at a, a friend's house. His father was reading it. It was called Space, Space, Space. It was an anthology uh, by William, put together by William Sloan, who had earlier written Edge of Running Water and To Walk the Night. Um, <clears throat> and I, I read my first adult science fiction in there, mm-hmm. and I just I realized I couldn't go back to Tomsworth Jr. anymore. Uh, <laughs> right. And so I actually had my father buy me a copy so I could you know read the whole thing. And yeah, I had it until a few years ago. I don't know what happened to it, but I actually had notes written, recommended by Paul Wilson, you know, <laughs> certain stories. Uh, Dear Devil by Eric Frank Russell. <clears throat> that was the one that really blew me away. Um, and it, it, it brought tears to my eyes. And I didn't realize that science fiction could do that. And so, yeah, I, be- I began buying science fiction. And um, I was, matter of fact, I was just cleaning out my shelves. And I came across this little beauty, which was the Island of Ooh, Dr. Crow. The Ace Edition. The Ace Edition. And inside the front cover is a one inside the front cover. I would write it. And that was the first book I bought and kept and started my library. And so, oh, wow. So, this is a keeper. Yeah, absolutely. I have the Sci Fi Masterworks edition of that. Um, and, uh, I love that series too, the Sci-Fi Masterworks, because they they um, 
put new glossy covers on <laughs> on usually books that you would you have to find tattered copies at used bookstores at you know four. But one of the things that I've really uh, enjoyed too about communicating with you and being and 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 watching or and seeing your feed online is that you do uh, really as much as you know. I do the same thing with dickheads is, is enjoy the history of the genre and really enjoy uh, making sure that people understand like the history and, and, and how it grew. And I know some, some of your favorites, I know you've made it a passion to, for example, promote Henry Kuttner as, you know, and I admit he, I first heard of him through you uh, at Borderlands, you were selling uh, planet stories um collection yeah i thank you for that but uh you know who who are the authors that you most think are undervalued from the golden age that you wish more people were reading these days the golden age i just read um well you know cutner of course um asimov was actually pretty good um and he, he's now coming back, and I think Foundation is bringing him back into Vogue, but he was he was sort of falling uh, off the radar uh, quite a bit. Um, I'm trying to think of the old pulp magazines that I, 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 I collect and who was in there that, um, you know, Manly Wade Wellman um, and E. Hoffman Price were, were I, I, I guess they're they sort of overlapped into the golden age. They're really pulp error. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Frederick Pohl. Um, Frederick Pohl straddles the whole thing. Yeah. Um, he uh, started out writing science fiction in the 30s. Uh, he actually, at age 19, he was editing Astonishing Stories. Um, and he had like no budget to buy things. He was begging his science fiction writer friends, you know, send me a story. Uh, just pull it out of anywhere, but you know, send me a story. Um, and then he went on to write some really uh, seminal stuff. Oh, C.M. Cornbluth is is not read enough anymore. Um, he, he and Paul would uh, collaborate. And they, there's some really, you know, essential Science fiction in the 50s. Yeah, their novel, The Space Merchants, is probably the one that's yeah. most remembered. But yeah. Um, John Wyndham. Uh, I was Nick Willem, I think it was John Bain and Harris, I'm not sure. Um, you know, he, he's known for the day of the Triffids, but he wrote a lot of uh, oh, you know, the it became the movie The Village of the Dam, but it was called The Midwich Cuckoos which is uh, an underappreciated book. I know, I know it's been made and remade as a movie. A guy named Nigel Neal, he did screenplays, uh, mm -hmm. teleplays for New York, um, for um, BBC, I'm sorry. And he did the Quatermass series, which uh, was really groundbreaking on British TV in the 50s. Um, and that was, they were remade into theatrical movies. Uh, and so, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Sorry. I think Cornbluth, uh, um, he also did The Marching Morons, which is an amazing story. If you haven't read it, 
uh, read it. It's it's, it's <laughs> so it, it just hasn't aged a bit, you know. And um, I don't want it, to. It's I don't want to, you know, ruin it for you by. You know, All right, I will read it today because it is in it is yeah. in this book. So. No, it has to be. <laughs> Um, well, and I want, wanted to drill down on that because I think that if people look at your career and, and if people are, are, this is their first introduction, some people maybe I, th- I know most of the listeners are going to be people that are very familiar with, with your work, but if they're not, the, your, a lot, the majority of your stories take place in one connected universe, which is the secret history of the world, right. is what you call it. Um, and to me, it's more elaborate and more thought out than the only thing comparable might be the Dark Tower. But um, even the Dark Tower is is the ten, the tangential connections to King's work are are not as intense as what's going on in, in secret history. But what I think is so fun about those books is that they work as thrillers. They work as as modern books, but on every page of the stories with what what goes on with the plots the weirdness i feel i feel your years of reading in in the genre um coming to bear and that's one of the things i love about the books so i'm wondering if you could tell are there specific stories that you consider like the light bulb moment or novels that that really like set you on the path of like i've got to do this too specifically i've got to be a writer um yeah well that that dear devil by uh, eric frank russell i mean that was that that made me want to read science fiction and maybe write it the the october country no the october game by ray bradbury Mm -hmm. uh I read that in uh, Alpha Hitchcock Anthology, 13 more stories they wouldn't let me do on TV. And that was one of those, that, that just blew me away. That, literally mm-hmm. sitting there, putting the story down and sort of staring and saying, what, what did he mean by, what, what, what's going on? And then some damn fool turned on the lights. Oh, well, and then all of a sudden, my brain reconstructed everything that Bradbury had been hinting at through the story that was happening in the dark. Mm-hmm. And then some handful turned the lights on. And, you know, it's one of those, those last lines that you say, well, then what happened? And then, oh, God. And, oh, shit. And it, it's one of those moments. Where, and that's where I, I said, I've got to do that for somebody. I've got to find a way to do that for somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was where, because it was in the dark. It was he was he was telling, not showing, which you're not supposed to do. But um, he was he was telling you obliquely, so you had to do all this inferring. Um, the other one was uh, the distributor by Richard Matheson. Um, mm. I read that in the shock anthology and I thought his collection shock and it just to me was just a masterpiece of, of understatement and, and 
and, and both of those stories showed me how less can be more um, and how I call it the inference engine. If you can get your reader's inference engine running, then they're with you because they're helping you write the story, so to speak. I try to, I try to structure things so that, well, the example I, I usually use is, I don't want to tell you that he's, he's a, this guy is a, a lousy cheapskate. I'll just have him, he's at the counter at, at the convenience store. And while the, the clerk's not looking, he grabs all the change from that little dish they put there. That's mm -hmm. all. Nobody sees him, he sticks in his pocket. But you've seen it. And so you're saying, this guy's a cheap bastard. And so now you're writing it with me because I haven't told you, you you've made the decision. And so now you're helping me construct the character and we're sort of doing it together. And it's very subtle. People, you know, readers don't realize it's happening. And uh, all that, but that's why they turn the page because now they're engaged. Now the inference engine is going. And, um, you know, it's a subtle thing, but I think it works. And, uh, and so that's all with the showing and there's no telling. Right. Well, and, and we'll get into how the inference engine works in Double Threat specifically, um, because obviously it's fresh in my mind. It's the last book I read. Um, and I do want to get there. But what's really interesting about your career is that you started off with a couple books of pure science fiction, pure space opera, which really is important to this particular story in, in, a, in a bit. But it was really when um, I, I would say probably everything changed with The Keep, right? The Keep is kind of like the novel that, well, it's the first story of the secret history, right? So it really introduces it. Even yeah. though there are some short stories and things that are in the timeline, well, before it, and Black Wind is similar timeline, but anyways... <laughs> The Keep is really where this kind of thing got started. Um, did, that starting off in space opera or, or in, in those kinds of things, did you feel like that was going to be your path all along? And or, or, or how did no. that transition happen? No, I wanted to write horror. I mean, you know, you look at that that first book I bought, The Island of Dr. Moreau. That's right. a horror cover. Um, you know, I wanted to write, there was no market. I, I, you know, I couldn't find a place to sell it. Even, even the cleaning machine, that, that one of my early science fiction stories, really, I looked at it as a horror story. Unreliable narrator, you know, bringing people down so they'll disappear. Um, you know, eliminating her, her fellow tenants because she was absolutely crazy. Um, Finally, I, I sold it to Starly Mystery Stories to uh, Doc Lowndes, who was editing it. Um, they, but they did one story, original story per issue. And uh, Greg Bear started there. Stephen King started there. And we all sold our first story to, to Doc Lowndes. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. And so, uh, and then finally, when King opened up the, the market, 
uh, I said, now I can write horror. So I sat down and all the horrible stuff that had been building up in me, you know, for a book. Um, and I had been reading a lot of Robert Ludlum too. So um, I was looking at all the, all the horror novels out there and they were all like uh, Salem's Lot type of thing, small town settings for the horror. And I was thinking, all right, I'm going to go the other way. I mean, it was something I started doing back when I wrote Demon Song uh, for Gerald Page. Um, just take the genre and turn it on its head. What are the, so I was writing a sword and sorcery story for Heroic Fantasy. That was the name of the anthology. And I said, well, let me write a sword and sorcery story where the, the hero never draws a sword. Mm-hmm. And, and so on, when, I, when I went to uh, write my horror novel, I was saying, well, I'm going to do what they're not doing. And they're, not, they're doing small screen. I'm going to go widescreen. I'm going to go international. And um, you know, that was the Ludlum influence. Also, the Ludlum influence of not being able to trust anybody. Um, mm-hmm. Everybody's lying. And so, um, but I, you know, and I, I wanted to make the vampire, uh, uh, you know, a red herring in the in, mm-hmm. in this that uh, you everybody thinks the characters think, and then the reader thinks, because I said it in Transylvania that they're dealing with a vampire, and you know, my conceit as I was writing it is, yeah, he's pretending to be a vampire because he's something much worse, mm-hmm. and that was you know. And the story still hadn't come together till I came up with those crosses. And I figured out how I could explain them because, you know, you had to have the crosses there if you're going to go with the vampire. And, but I didn't want them to be Christian crosses. I wanted it to be something else. And so when I finally came up with what they are, um, bang, 3 a.m. in the morning, I, I figured that's what it is. And I scribbled it down on a piece of paper, and then the book just fell, fell together after that. Right. Well, one of the things that's that keep kind of also set you on a path with is, and I should say that The Keep is one of my all-time favorite uh, horror novels, the, the one you're describing. And um, But what's really cool is that the, the misdirection that you're talking about, you think the novel's about one thing, and then it's something much different is is a motif that you've come back to um there's for example one of the repairman jack books looks like a haunted house novel but but it's actually more science fiction and it has like a technological thing going on and that trick of misdirection is one of the things that i think you're particularly really good at is, is setting people up to think that a novel is one thing and pulling the rug out from under the reader at some point um it's a a trick that i think you're the master of personally um and the keep was where you really started that and so that was the the part of the initial idea all along was from the beginning that wasn't something that you happened upon while writing no no um i i I need to i need to know i can end a book before i begin and um so I always have, I always know how to end it. I'm not, not always sure how I'm going to get there, but um, yeah, but I, I, you know, part of it came from a, a, 
we were writing letters back then. There was was an email. As you know, Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough and I were sending. You know, talking about her book. Uh, I think it was Hotel Transylvania. Um, that's where she interviews her her vampire hero. And I was saying, you know, you can't have a vampire as a hero. I mean, because they're parasites. They're they're not good guys, and you can't have them as a good guy. I, I said I just couldn't buy it as a good guy, and that got me thinking. That, that twist I told you about, what if someone is just pretending to be a good vampire? And, and not right, and there's something worse. Yes, and they're hiding that there's something much worse. And and that, I had that before I even started the novel. I mean, um, but other things came up, you know, during the, during the writing, you know, other things would, would, would pop into my head and they'd, I'd make them part of the book, but um, you know, it's, uh, it's something I was aiming for the whole time. Right. Well, and so you've done the Repairman Jack series, you've done the Adversary Cycle. These are, these are long, uh, the Adversary Cycle, six books. Repairman Jack is, <laughs> at this point, I've lost track of, because there's a couple different Kind of the YA, the YA ones, uh, there's probably 23, I think, maybe 24. Yeah. And uh, they're extremely readable. Um, so if people have not read them, don't be daunted by the number. Uh, but also don't be daunted <laughs> by the fact that you can kind of read Double Threat on your own. Oh, and, yeah, that's that's standalone, really. Yeah. And so a lot of these books in these series, especially like the adversary books, a couple of them certainly stand on their own. <laughs> and I think if you read The Keep, uh, you'll want to find out <laughs> what's going on, which is interesting because you did not have all this planned when you wrote the keep that it was an it was an accident oh no yeah the keep was a standalone the tomb was a standalone and the touch was a standalone no no idea of connecting them until you know berkeley wanted uh, <laughs> a, you know a sequel to the keep mm-hmm. um and they had passed on on Black Wind. They didn't know how to market it. Um, but, you know, then they did want a sequel to this. So I wrote, you know, I, I, I plotted out, you know, Reborn. And it was, you know, it was going to come out to be a thousand page novel. And so um, I, I broke it into three books. And uh, so Born Reprisal and Night World. And then you know, in writing that, I uh, I brought in characters. I brought in Repairman Jack, um, and you know, Glaken had to be in there because he was in in the keep. And um, I brought in the people from uh, the Touch. So uh, all of a sudden, it was a six book cycle instead right. of standalones and and a long uh, sequel. So, and unplanned, and then and then Roberta oh. Jack took on a life of his own, and became almost more important to your readers than than the original story that 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 kind of started the whole thing. So, yeah. Well, it took me fourteen years to do the second Roberta Jack book. You know, hmm. I I didn't I didn't want to do a series character. Um, I was sure 
it would take over. You know, I had other books to write. Um, the Touch was already written in my head, and Black Wind had, had was taking form. And you know, I I just didn't want to do a series character. That's why I left it dying at the end, or bleeding to death at the end. And <clears throat> but fine, you know, it never went out of print. The tomb never went out of print. People kept reading it, keep writing to me. Um, so finally, after 14 years, you know, I, I did number two, and then that sold so well, they wanted number three, so I did number three. And then, <clears throat> then I said, well, I might as well commit to this and get going and do it. And uh, I was right. It took over my writing career. So. <laughs> but they're so good. <laughs> so... Uh, Repairman Jack fans are are happy that you did, and and I will say too that, and I say this all the time, but I believe Harbingers is book ten, right? Yeah, there. Harbingers has one of the best twists ever, um, and Harbingers is my favorite, sandwiched in the middle of all the Repairman Jack books. We can't really talk about it because you, you got to read the first nine to really appreciate it. Exactly. Yeah. And the first nine can sort of be read in different order. They, they don't they don't necessarily flow one to another necessarily. Um, but that you one, can't, you can't start yeah. with Harbingers because then, you know, uh, Harbingers definitely builds off everything else. But Harbingers has a moment that was one of my favorite all time, like holding a book and going, ah, what just happened to me moments. Um, uh, pretty much ever um, what just happened in front of my eyes in this page. Um, so I, I have a real strong feeling about that. And, you know, it's funny too, is because I read ground zero because I was interested in what you were doing with that story when I had read the tomb, but I hadn't read everything else. And I read mm -hmm. ground zero and I kind of sort of got it. But then when I went back and read the series, I reread it again and I felt like, yeah, I, I, I followed along okay, but it really wasn't the same experience without having read all the other books. So I highly recommend everybody check out Repairman Jack books. Um, the YA um, prequels um, help and they're fun, but they're not quite as essential, I think, as, as some of the, the other ones. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, they do add, they add background to the characters for sure. Yeah, and, and, um, they're they're more fun if you've read the main sequence because right. you see how he first meets so and so and yeah. things like that. Yeah, so it's actually better to read them and kind of like after you've read most of them. Um, it so, but there is one novel in, in your past that is really important to this current novel, which is Healer, and I admit I. I've read Healer, but I read it many moons ago. <laughs> so, and I just, I didn't know until I opened up and read, read the introduction that these books were kind of tangentially connected. If I had known, I probably would have gone out and read Healer, I reread Healer a couple months ago, but I'm glad I didn't because I think um, in this case, I'm getting a new original experience, but can you tell folks about Healer uh, that book and give us like kind of a baseline for why that book's important to this one. Well, I mean, Healer was my first novel. Um, and really, 
isn't the novel. It's 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 more of a patchwork of novellas and short stories and stuff. Um, That's but, how the all the great ones did it in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Um, but you know, it, it, it was about a second intelligence. Someone's head is invaded by you know an alien intelligence, and they share the same nervous system, the same body, um, except this, this second entity is conscious down to the cellular or even the molecular level. And it was just, it was just as a doctor, um, it was some way of healing yourself. And then I made it so you, 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 you could heal others. Um, and so, uh, you, you know, years later, I'm a, actually I'm a guest at San Diego Comic Con, and Chris Morgan, who had written probably one of the, the best and the, the last and the best uh, Repairman Jack script for for Beacon, just came down from LA to for a visit. He had now gotten involved in Fast and Furious, and he was a very hot writer director producer at Universal. And he was just, he was just saying, I've always loved Healer. And uh, someday I'd like to make a movie out of it. And I said, well, you know, most of it takes place in the head, you know, the two voices. He said, yeah, but I would, I would make Pard visible to Dalt. Only to Dalt, but, you know, make it, he'd be visible so they could actually interact. I'm saying, Jesus, that's brilliant. And that's, <laughs> and that's, that's a, a filmmaker's mind. He thinks visually. Um, I'm thinking what's on the page. I don't have to really think that visually because I let you do the visuals. But he has to think very concretely. And, and it just stuck with me. And that was, this was so 10, 15, 10, 12 years later. It still stuck with me. You know, why didn't I make part visible? And uh, and then so I said, well, I'm going to do it. I'm just the hell with it. So I changed the setting from far future space opera to contemporary Southern California. Dalt becomes daily uh, a millennial female, and uh, Pard remains Pard. Um, and but you can you know he makes his voice and his image you know, in her visual and, and auditory cortex so that this is she actually sees the person there and he can be anything you know he can morph into anything he wants um and uh, so he decides on this sort of generic male thing because you know he he, he says i identify as male <laughs> and um and um so you know she resists him at first and and finally he becomes her confidant and their best friends. And um, all right, there's going to be two books in the series. And um, the first one, you know, sets up everything because the second one is totally wild. <laughs> I mean, this is really, I've got, I've got, I'm flooding the whole uh, uh, Imperial Valley and I'm just doing some you know, crazy ass things. But, uh, <laughs> So did you write them together just in one 
I wrote them back to back, yeah. Yeah. Because it, it was one story in humor. Yeah. But I, I've added so many characters and other things around it now that it, it, it just, uh, I can only get through half of it uh, in, in one book. So I, yeah. I, just, I, just, I just finished one, put it aside, started book two. You know, it just, it, it takes up, it picks up hours after the end of book one. So uh, actually they could be published together, but. Yeah, totally. Well, and so the thing with um, Healer was that, you know, being the space opera, then you get this opportunity by being able to put it into the secret history. Was that the plan from the beginning? No, it's just the way I think now, you know. Um, That's funny. Yeah. It, it, it's, uh, it would be hard not to put it into the secret history. Uh, but it's always fun to fit little things. And it's, it's peripheral to the, to the secret history in a way. You know, it doesn't really impact on it. Um, well, I think of, it's page 180 specifically where uh there where there's a slight there's a definite connection to the touch or and there's a short oh. story that's set in the secret history that i believe it connects to uh, um but so it's 180 pages in because i i'll tell you that my experience is that i didn't go to the back to see because all the secret history books in the back have this timeline right yeah. And um, it's funny because I have a habit when I pick up your books to see if at this point, before I start, I'll look to see where in the timeline it takes place. And this time I didn't because I thought, oh, well, this isn't a secret history book. And so um, it, you should know that it worked in the sense that on page 180, when I got to that part, I went, ah, there you go. And then I flipped back and saw it. And, now I'll have to go look up page 180. <laughs> um, well, I do have a dog here, so I can, so we can, when we get to spoilers, we'll talk about right. it. But, um, but this presented some interesting, um, you know, writing techniques for you because you're you're creating a character who is visible internally to your to one of your point of view characters, but not to others. So you had to think about like how am I mechanically going to do that as a writer, right? That it works for the reader. So how did you work to solve those things? Uh, you know, it, it was, it was hard. It was hard. Um, the audiobook had, they had to have three narrators. Um, <laughs> so, because there's, there's Daly's speaking voice. Daly's thought voice, and then Daly speaking to Pard. Mm -hmm. um, and so sometimes she'll speak out loud, and sometimes she'll speak in her head when there are other people around, because um, they, you know, they, they share the same brain, so they can share the thoughts. Um, but you know, getting the uh, keeping the dialogue separate was always uh, a challenge. Um, I had to put, I would put parts in, in parentheses, um, which is also a lot of, is, is nice because 
I didn't have to do all the dialogue tags. If you saw it in parentheses, you knew it was Parn speaking. And if, if, if Daly is the only one in the room, then you know it's Daly speaking. And um, it's, it, I, I hate to do dialogue tags if I don't need them. And I, <clears throat> I especially don't like them in audiobooks because you've got a good you know, narrator, they're, they're changing their voice for the characters. And so, um, yeah, I just find it annoying when it said, he said, she said, he said, she said, well, I mean, you're using the female voice and the male voice. Yeah, I, I know who's saying what. Um, yeah, but, I'd rather be confused and have to go back and read, like, oh, to try and figure out who said something than to have too many speech tags. And what I think a lot of writers or non-writers don't realize is how much authors like actually agonize for when to use speech tags and when not to. But yeah, you know, it's I mean, sometimes if you have two very different types of people, I mean, when Jack and Abe talk, Abe's got the, you know, the 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 New York Jewish accent mm -hmm. and he throws in a lot of you know, the Yiddishisms. Um, yeah, and so very easy with those two. You know, Abe has a has a certain rhythm to his speech, um, and, and Jack has his own rhythm. And, and just by rhythm alone, if not by actual vocabulary, you can you know you can tell. It's when you get three people in a room. <laughs> it's when it gets yeah, and, and yeah. you know, and, and on our uh, recent horror short story podcast. Laird Barron pointed out that um, I believe it's Petey by T.E.D. Klein is like one of the best examples of writing multiple characters in a room. So people are, I thought that was a really good suggestion. I went back and looked at that a little bit and um, it is really hard to do multiple people in a room. And so now in this book, what you've got is you've got multiple people in a head, <laughs> which yeah. is good. Which, uh, but yeah, like you said, that the um, having the uh, um, ellipses like really helped to do to, to differentiate that. And what's really interesting too is is that because Pard becomes Pard is a symbiont creature to Daly, but becomes his own character. How much did you have to think about Pard is essentially born inside Daly's? brain right yeah so everything part everything that is part comes from experience that she's had essentially but develops his own personality so can you tell talk to us about creating that character because that's really fascinating for me as a reader and a writer reading that that was one of the most fun parts of the book well I, I work under the premise that um, if you have a rational mind, you can you you can come up with a code of behavior, mm -hmm. and um, and so his code of behavior is different from Daly's. Daly is a con woman, mm -hmm. and part is basically more much more uptight and much more straight laced. Um, he also noticed that his vocabulary was limited in the beginning to hers. Yeah. And because she's she's sort of undereducated. Um, 
she, she grew up with a family that didn't send the kids to school. Um, and she didn't get to her first public school until she was like 13 or something. So she, you know, she's got a limited and her, her cultural knowledge is limited. You know, she just, she's just not that well educated. And Pard has got this hungry mind, mm-hmm. he's hungry for information. And so um, he reads while she's asleep. You know, he, he opens his, her eyes and, and, and starts going books like this, you know. And um, so he, he develops his own, you know, personality. And then she finds her knowledge and vocabulary increasing as, as he's increasing his because, you know, that's all stored in her brain now. And all of a sudden she knows what things mean. And, you know, she all of a sudden, you know, she's, she sees some light and shadow on a building and she compares it to Hopper. And he said, and she's saying, who's Hopper? Oh, I don't know who Hopper is, but how, how did I know? And that type of thing. So um, he's definitely benefiting from her, but she's definitely benefiting from him. So it's a, it's a true symbiosis uh, going on there. And so he actually starts, you know, infecting her with his ethics. Um, her a higher form of ethics, you know, you know, you're too good for these scams that you're pulling on people. Mm-hmm. Um, aren't you ashamed? And and that type of things. And, and that's one of the the subtext is that a rational mind can come up with with, with a, a a working code of ethics. Um, I even think that artificial intelligence should be able to do that. And once it gets once it gets going, people are always afraid that it's going to be, you know, take over. Want it want to take over, but you know, why couldn't it develop a you know a, a set of ethics? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll have to explore that story sometime. But, um, <laughs> I just read a really great AI novel um, called Machinehood that I would recommend by um, uh, American Indian. Uh, um, uh, uh, an American of Indian descent, <laughs> uh, S.B. Div- Divya, and the novel is called Machinehood, and I highly recommend it. It's one of the best modern sci-fi novels I've read in a long time. Um, and, and she's a neuroscience AI expert, and so um, uh, very, very, very good. But um, but yeah, so back to to now writing those nuances had to be super fun for you. Um, to to have those little details of you had to constantly be like keeping track of you know how she's speaking how she's learning how her language is changing how her and part like kind of grow as characters so that must have been a really interesting um exercise to write characters growing um in that way in a symbiotic relationship like that it was, it been- was. And, and that was um that's one of the things that, that drew me to um, reconceptualizing Healer because uh, you know, in Healer, the science fiction novel, Dalt was a fully formed adult male. Mm-hmm. Um, and Pard was playing catch up. This way, you know, Daly is sort of undeveloped, mm-hmm. still growing, still learning, still developing female human and and when pard is sort of learning along with her and um but obviously she's talented and she has all these things she just 
it part unlocks a lot of this, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, she's she's a crafty, smart young woman, but you know, crafty being the operative word there. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. she makes you know she she makes uh, her basic living by uh, you know billing companies for services she never rendered, and then. You know, because you know the, their bookkeepers are overworked, they just pay the bill because it's like sixty-three dollars or something like that. It's nothing that's going to break the bank, and um, she just sends out the bills every month and and and, and you know, collects about forty thousand dollars a year just uh, for these phony bills. Uh, and uh, and you know, Pard finds this you know abhorrent. You know, you're better than this. And so, you know, it, it, it was, it was, it was a lot, it was, a, that was a lot more fun than writing Healer. Uh, writing this one, uh, you know, the, the characters were just, you know, I, I just fell in love with the two of them. Uh, well, and so writing, well, and you've grown so much as a writer over the years. That was your first novel, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh so. yeah. And it shows when you read it, you know, it shows it's, uh, it's a first novel. Um, right. And I always say back then we were learning to write in public. Mm, yeah. Yep. Yep. And uh, so, all right, before we get into spoilers and close out on spoilers, um, just to, so I think that's the aspect that that symbiotic relationship and the way that the characters, it's a very character driven story with this unique um, supernatural setup for um for what makes it a really good character driven story. And um, I, I think that's what really um, to me makes it an interesting and fun read. Um, You know, what's, you know, our last before spoilers, um, what's our last pitch for, for double threat? Because I think it also has, we should also note that it, that, Double Threat also has UFO UFO cults, uh, awesome Southern California, like and not LA. I'm talking Southern and Southeastern Southern California here in San Diego and Imperial Valley. Um, interesting locales and um, and and the Salton Sea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Salton Sea. Um, and what and you know you mostly have written a lot of stories that take place in New York and and, and the area around you. How did, how did Southern California come into the story? Was it, was it just the potential for the, I know we've had UFO cults here before as part of it. I, I acknowledge that. I, uh, um, I I took a winter vacation in, in Palm Springs, um, years ago. And I'd heard about the salt and sea. And I said, you know, I said to my wife, I said, yeah, this may bore the hell out of you, but I've got to go see this place. And um, so when, when we drove down there and I, it, it was, it was surreal. Um, and the smell was <laughs> just, you know, it was, uh, it, it was a very strong odor. Um, I can't believe fish live in that water, but apparently there are tilapia in there. But the thing is, it all used to be 200 feet, you know, underwater. It used to be the bottom of a sea, 
that, that ran up from uh, you know Baja area, and before the the Colorado River laid down these mountains of silt, uh, on which you know uh, what is it uh, Texacali or whatever it is uh, uh, Mexicali is, is built. Um, you know, it, it was all one big body of water like four million years ago. So you can still find seashells there. But you, know, you think you walk, you're crunching on sand when you go up to the salt sea, but it's all dead fish bones. Mm. Um, they've had, you know, they had tremendous die-offs at times. Um, and so, uh, and then, then there's the, uh, uh, the, the settlement in Slab City there. Uh, it, it just, just a fact, I said, I gotta put this in a story somehow. And it plays right. a much bigger part in book two, uh, Salton Sea itself. But um, uh, but the whole area around it, it just, you know, the mountains on both sides and there's this, there's this haze because you're, you're below sea level. Well, you know, a couple hundred feet below sea level when you're there. Um, just surreal place. So you, it's kind of a place I couldn't make up. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting that there isn't more fiction that <laughs> gets set there. Um, yeah, I think, well, because it's isolated and a lot of people haven't seen it, if more people saw it, probably would, would happen. Um, all right, so uh, before we get into spoilers, Double Threat um, is out from um, Forge, and it's available for, uh, you know, wherever you get books, and also, I did not know about the audiobook. That's interesting. So, is that um, that that has three narrators? Mm -hmm. Three narrators, uh, uh, and uh, you know the ebook. You know, so it's uh, yeah. paper, yeah. vocal, and electronic. <laughs> All right. Well, and then you're saying uh, double dose will probably get next year sometime. So, probably a year from now or so. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, so, okay, uh, you've been warned. Um, uh, spoilers um, are coming. We're going to um, assume that anyone listening beyond this point has already read the book, so we're not worried about spoiling things. So, yes, it was page 180 where um, there's uh, Pard says, uh, very impressive. You don't have to ask about uh, Wardenclyffe because thanks to me, somewhere in your memory bank is the now is that's now defunct town far out in the north shore of long island that comes from a secret history short story correct i am not bella morning cliff yeah 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 uh, but that's also a real place i mean it's right not, yeah okay and then um so but that at that point though the the i think that also connects a little bit to the touch or am I, am I wrong about that? Like, um, no, no, okay. um, no, Tesla wasn't involved in the touch at all. Tesla was maybe, uh, it was broadcast energy in legacies. Legacies. Okay. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. I knew it was somewhere there. All right. So, um, one of the, okay. So once you get into this, um, so with the UFO cult and everything that's going on, there becomes like a mystery and a thing, a, a connection to this city. 
Um, and I didn't want to talk about it before we got into spoilers, but, um, you know, daily being out in this area gets involved with this, um, this larger, grander conspiracy. And one of the ways that this is introduced to her is one of my favorite elements of the book. And one of my favorite scenes, which I thought was great, which is the character who slips the notes under the door, which was, yeah, I loved that, uh, that, the the idea that he didn't want to be seen or heard. I can't remember if he doesn't, he can't speak. He can't speak. Doesn't want to be seen. And so he slips these notes under the door, just one after another, and they talk back to him. This was a great scene. Where did this come from? Was, it was just, this is really great. (laughs) I love this part. Well, now I, I, I just, for some reason, uh, I, I don't know where he came from. Um, I just, I wanted um, Reese to have a brother or a sibling mm-hmm. or some, you know, all foil. He could bounce things off of that wasn't his father. And, and so I, I just said, well, I'll, I'll give him a brother, but I wanted to make the brother special some way and so he's got this skin condition that's just ugly as can be he looks like a you know the bark of a tree and um he just he's just very self-conscious about it doesn't want to be seen and so um uh, he writes notes and he can't speak it has affected his voice so he writes notes back and forth to his you know they, they play chess and they communicate by notes and um he, for some reason, yeah, I forget the reason. Um, oh yeah, he wanders around at night. You know, he can't go out in the day. He doesn't want to be seen. So he wanders around in the dark at night, and he comes upon Daly. And in her, you know, he hears her in her apartment. He goes to the apartment next door. He hears her in the apartment, and he's she. He thinks she's talking. She, she's got company, but then. She, he doesn't hear the responses, and so he thinks she's on the phone. Um, but then he just finds a little slit. He peeks through and sees that she's alone and she's talking to the air. And this um, this intrigues him, and then he starts. He he wants to get in touch with her, and so he he slips the note under the door, and um, uh, and then that's how they built a relationship, which becomes much more important in um, book two. Um, yeah, I kind of had a feeling it was going that way. Now, what I like about it is, and I think we talked about this in, in, uh, in um, what is now episode four of this podcast, it wasn't meant to be, but I love parallels and reversals. I love that's to me, that's the heart of storytelling. And what I liked about the note man guy is that he becomes this you know she has these voices in her head and he has no voice so i like the reversal that um and the parallel the parallel and reversal of this character uh and what what that said about it so it's not just that it's creepy that he's putting under the door and won't speak to them that is something that's there but i like that it has like a fundamental parallel to the situation that's going on with daily whether it was intentional or not i don't know if you intended it that way or not but i maybe maybe subconsciously i did but not not consciously 
Um, mm. And so this cult um, has, they're very concerned about, so this character that Daly becomes involved with is a member of the cult. His father is is a part of it and they're very wor- worried about her and what she means is this how does this cult relate to or does it relate to um other parts of the secret history because that was something that i wondered about as it was going on and you can tell me that i need to wait for book two to find out if that's the case but well you know um there are you know it's, it's, there are a lot of, uh, there are a number of cosmic entities out there that uh, are intrusive. Um, two, you know, two of them are really in, locked in a, in, in a war uh, over us. Um, but um, there are others too that, you know, have been here and gone and that type of thing. It's, um, yeah, it, it just I, I'm just sort of embellishing a little on on the uh, the intrusive cosmic entities as one of the characters in uh, Panacea calls them. Uh, mm. So, uh, so okay. So what what you're saying is is that well well the secret history comes down to uh, a battle between a couple cosmic entities. That doesn't mean that we're not seeing the influence of other cosmic entities. And if this big um, confrontation is happening, wouldn't that draw the attention of other cosmic entities that may have interest in, in what's going on? I think. Yeah, I mean, because, yeah. um, and we're learning more and more that, uh, you know, the, the, the Fermi paradox is probably right on. You know, if there are so many other uh, inhabited worlds out there where are they mm-hmm. and um there is an equation that that says that really sapiens and you know sentient and sapiens are are rare in, in the galaxy um because of all the environmental uh hurdles and developmental hurdles and uh uh development yeah you know, hurdles that you have to get over to to survive as far as we've gotten you know without either being destroyed by some cosmic uh you know like that that asteroid that that hit and wiped out the dinosaurs if that hit today it would wipe us out we were yeah. pretty good. um so we we're, but we've also had a muamua come through the solar system and and uh lots of well i had uh avi Loeb, the scientist who wrote the book saying um i had him on the podcast he's the guy that has basically been arguing that Oumuamua is proof of that we've no we've seen proof of extraterrestrials and he's controversial for having said that <laughs> you know but uh you know also we have you know the thing is you know, this solar system is uniquely set up um, yep. Ju- Jupiter is like our guardian angel. You know, um, it, it, it attracts a lot of these comets. 
and uh, they they never reach us. Um, and it, it might also shake loose a few asteroids, but it is uh, a, uh, a, a you know a, a sort of a guardian out there. It is and, very true. It's very true, and a lot of people don't think about how much they they should look up and thank Jupiter. So and we haven't and we haven't wiped ourselves out. We we've had opportunities, but you know, and and there was a oh I forget what it, where it was, but there was a huge volcanic eruption that that killed off most of the life on Earth and most of humanity and created a genetic bottleneck for humanity, which we did come through. But, you know, we came through with, uh, we lost a lot of uh, genes along, you know, along the way. Well, um, you, you think about these things a lot because the secret history actually spans yeah. a lot of this. Yeah. Uh, be, um, <laughs> in, in a funny and interesting way. But what I think is really cool about daily and this novel and this situation this is why i say this for spoilers to ask this question is is that this cult might be onto something that pard's existence and and connection to daily might especially coming two months before the night world events right two or three months before um could mean that she could really mean something much much more than we're seeing initially in this book that she doesn't have bad intentions but does does this connection does it mean more i don't know so well um it, it, you know the, the head of the of the of the cult the clan he um he sees her as a threat and it, it's it is sort of written in the stars since they are reading the stars that you know um the duad the duad has formed and right. the duad is here um and so they're afraid of of her um and actually you know they will try to eliminate her you know as things go on um uh, but, and definitely we saw her get stabbed in the heart Yes. Uh, and save and that was a really cool scene and since we're in spoilers we can talk about it um like um i don't know i don't remember if anything similar happened in healer i i, I couldn't remember because it's been so long since i read healer but it was a blaster yeah okay so the yeah and and that scene um you know obviously i thought there you know he's gonna save her but how that happened and 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 all that was was really cool but uh you know that that had to have been a fun part to write too right the the yeah yeah um it was well I mean, it got, <laughs> as i was planning it out and saying am i going to do this can i make this work yeah um, and you know, in, in the science fiction, it, it seems much easier. When this, right. it, it's, it's much up, more up close and personal. And um, can I make this work? And also, I, I, but I didn't want her to be completely passive. Because um, right. she, you know, because she's not only, she's not only hurt, and she's got a knife sticking out of her, through her heart, but she's pissed <laughs> that this guy went and did this to her. And, you know, 
she wants to get back at him. And the, the way she does it, I, I thought was entertaining anyway. Um, right. I, I well, be very careful how I wrote it, you know, because um, yeah, it's, uh, I'm really stretching a credibility, I think. Uh, when a knife goes all the way through a heart and gets, to, a, to its tensile limit, you know? Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, and one of the things that I like about, um, and I said in my review of this book that I sometimes feel like you write with a plotting cheat code because uh, you're so good at putting these things together. But one of the things that I like too, and I want to get into the UFO called a little bit, is that a lot of times you take these, like these order, like the Septimus order and all this stuff that's part of the secret history. They're, they're, <laughs> really like weird and like you like it's hard to imagine these characters being or writing these characters without making them mustache twirlers or being weird and then you make them believable and and i thought it was a smart choice to have daily be involved with the son of the leader of this cult because you you got a chance to see that he didn't necessarily want this life but was kind of pulled into this life and i thought that was a smart a narrative decision but i'm also wondered that the whole ufo cult was that an outgrowth of seeing the salton sea and thinking about it and being like what weird thing could come out of this or like how, how did that aspect of the story come to fruition well yeah the salton sea triggered it because um, that whole valley, the whole Imperial Valley, it, it used to be flooded up to the uh, past Palm Beach and Palm Springs, uh, not Palm Beach, Palm uh, Desert and Palm Springs, uh, or to the uh, Saint, uh, San Gorgoni uh, Pass. It was all the way up there. Um, I was thinking, well, Maybe these these beings that were here four million, five million years ago, you know, frolicked in this in this sea, um, and it was like their little vacation place, and um, right, and they got kicked out, you know, maybe by you know one of the other entities. And um, in this weird forming of ecology, there's this preservation of it, and right, got it. I see where this is going. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and. Uh, I'm, I'm very meticulous. Um, I wrote a whole history of, of the cult from its from when they found the, the scrolls in, in the uh, Egyptian souk all the way you know down to the present time and family members' names and things that happened, also things that happened in history and especially you know, there's a lot of uh, seismic activity uh, you know, the uh, uh, the San Andreas Fault runs right down the middle of the Salton Sea. Mm -hmm. so, I, mean, I have a lot of earthquakes playing in there uh, in book two. Um, so <clears throat> it's uh, I know I know the history I, I have of the cult, and I just you know use that as as, as a background just to so, to to make me believe it a little more as I'm writing it. If I, right. And that, that works for me. Yeah, well, and for your readers. Uh, I think because you give it a, a sense of realism that 
that makes these things that you're like, you, you know, that on, on surface level would just seem so ridiculous. And then you, you've got to try and find a way to make them believable if you're going to write about these characters, you know? And, yeah. And I have to, I have to buy, be able to buy into it to a certain extent, you know, uh, in my fiction head. And okay. in real life, you know, I don't, but in my fiction head, I have to buy into it. Well, that's that Peter Straub quote that I don't believe in ghosts, but my imagination does. Um, I, I always love that quote. Um, but uh, all right. So writing, to just, just to close out that the writing of Double Threat, what was the thing that you most were surprised by in the writing process, but something that occurred in how you were writing the narrative or how it was working that you didn't see coming um because every novel has those moments you know um probably in in, in book two they were um, i introduced two new characters and um uh a, br a brother and a sister and they have a very contentious relationship and I needed someone to witness what was happening on the salt and sea, and I couldn't, I, you know, Daly had to be somewhere else, and Card had to be with her, of course, and and the other point of view characters were otherwise engaged, and so um, there's there's a tremendous, you know, there, there's actually a, an interdimensional gateway starts to open over the salt and sea, which I drain, by the way, <laughs> and refill from a huge crack in the San Andreas Fall there. And it refills from water from somewhere else with things in it that don't belong. Um, you weren't kidding uh, when book two gets more wild. Oh, yeah, that, that was another thing that sort of surprised me. That, that thing, I said, well, why don't I just drain the salt and sink and then fill it up again from you know, water from somewhere else? Because everything's going crazy now. And I said, ah, yeah, why not? <laughs> Well, it is two months before the end of the world. So, you yes, know, right, right. <laughs> perfect time for these things to happen. Yeah, um, <laughs> all right, um, Paul, I I really did love this book. Um, I It sounds like book two is going to be completely bananas. Um, and I'm really looking forward to it. But um, I, I, and I'm really excited that, uh, well, now that I know about these mysteries, I, I'm gonna have to uh, track those down as well. Um, I'm excited by your retirement that you get more time to write and looking forward to more deepening of the secret history. I should have had you on for Signals. Um, and uh, Signals was an interesting, well, because it's more directly connected. And yeah. and um, Signals was one that when I, when I read it, I... I <laughs> I just was like, ah, you know, it, it seemed like that was just one that like just occurred to you that there's this little story that's that's there. And then you have the chance to just go and write it, you know? Well, people like, kept saying, well, whatever happened to so-and-so? Whatever happened to so-and-so? I said, oh, I, why don't I just stick so-and-so and so-and-so in the story? And right. um and it'll answer some of your questions. Uh, it didn't mm -hmm. end well for them, but uh, you know, you know, yeah, you know, it's <laughs> well, I'm sure that there's just little, I mean, because you 
meticulously write out these histories i'm sure there's other parts of the secret history that have been kind of floating around at the edges for a while so we may oh, I've see got two, i've got two books i just finished uh, oh that are secret secret history directly related another two books called uh, the hidden uh combination be called the hidden and um my agents got them out now um I wrote them both back to back, and then he's taken them both out because you know they they sort of form one you know unit. I guess it's a, a duad, a duology. I don't know what they call two books, but um, directly secret history related. Then oh yes, okay, <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, more secret history the better. Um, I I you know that's when people ask me what I want to do when Dickheads is over when we've read all the books. One of the things I threatened to do was to do a secret history podcast. So, uh, <laughs> and uh, but at the same time, there's part of me that thinks that I need to I need to wait because you keep, you keep adding to it. So I just can't yeah go there yet. So you know that's that's the only concern that I have is, is that 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 it's impossible to feel like you've completed that at any point because you're still I'll probably you're still keep going. adding to it you know while, you know and, until dementia sets in you know <laughs> oh well you know the it, the more secret history the better um speaking as as a, as a big fan um but anyways so uh repairmanjack.com is where uh where people can find the yeah. the majority everything um yeah he is uh uh uh, you did get kind of roped in by that character, but of all the characters, I'm sorry that the uh, the I, I can't believe Hollywood has not figured out that that this is the prestige thriller, uh, the, the the TV series they need to do. Um, I, I I think uh, quite, tried quite a bit. They're still trying. They're still trying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll and see. The keep will be back. Um, we're just negotiating a a new uh, option on that. Oh wow! Well, um, that would be great because uh, the film I got we the got, rights back. Yeah. Yes, the the film that we got is uh, is, is it has the same title. <laughs> yeah, it has the same title. <laughs> uh, well, it's funny because the other a couple of weeks ago, some I was talking to somebody who was a huge fan of the movie, and I was like. And I was like, have you read the book? And they were like, yeah, it's different. And I'm like, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> and then I was like, I can't imagine being a fan of both. I just, it, it's, it blows my mind. But, well, you know. One good movie, thing about the movie for me is it got me a lot of new readers. That's true. That's um, true. That, that movie tie-in edition sold very well, even though the movie didn't. But the yeah. tie-in edition sold very well, and, and uh... right, yeah. Well, it is, um, in in my opinion, one of the uh, greatest horror novels ever written, and um, I, I, uh, it may okay. not be, it may not be my favorite F. Paul Wilson. That may be Harbinger's, but I, I think, um, as just a standalone horror novel, it's one of the best. So, and on that note, um, I'm going to, uh, um. Definitely uh, want to have you back when we have double dose to talk about. Uh, that sounds great. Uh, Paul, thanks for joining uh, Postcards from a Dying World. It was a 
pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. And I, I, I hope your jets are doing all right. I haven't looked. So yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> all right. Well, good luck to them too. <laughs>